Hey, thanks for checking out episode 12 of the Ross Trevina Project. Today's guest is a documentary filmmaker and host of On the Edge with Andrew Gold. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Andrew Gold. Thanks for coming on anyway, man. Oh, thanks for having me. You make documentaries and podcasts. Well, have you made more than one documentary or is it just the one you've sent me? I have made lots of documentaries, but so it's very, it's hard to know how many of them have ever actually broadcast. So I made, uh, I started by making um, short documentaries like mini docs and they were like things like looking at uh, like hunting for UFOs and stuff like that, like silly <laughs> things, you know. Uh, infidelity in Argentina, that kind of thing, and they they were like five minute things. Yeah, um, made them for like um, for a TV channel called Fusion. That's oh, how I've I heard started. Of Fusion, well, yeah. Right, yeah, I actually started way before that. So, oh, uh, I worked at the Sun, unfortunately. Oh, really? But, <laughs> yeah, the job was a job. It was my first like journalism job. So I was twenty two, twenty three, and that's when I wanted to start doing it all. And I. Uh, yeah, I, I, I said to my boss at one point, because we were in the digital department, online department, and I was like, you know, can I make some sort of Louis Theroux kind of documentaries? Yeah. And he was like, no, I don't need that. <laughs> no. And I was like, well, can't I do anything like that? And he was like, nah, don't need it. So I was like, I might just go and do it anyway. And I got a bloke who was a, sorry, I've, I've skipped right ahead because that might've been future questions for you. You know, no, whenever I'm interviewing fine. someone, I ask, I ask them a question like, so have you made other documentaries? And they're like, in 1991. Yeah. You just answer all my pre, pre uh, written questions <laughs> in one. No, no, I hadn't, I hadn't really written anything about that. So go ahead. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah. It's, it's the worst thing, you know, I had it the other day, actually last week, uh, what was it it was yesterday and it was a bloke who's uh who's on my podcast next week called uh he's he's known as the coffin confessor and he uh he goes to people's funerals and um like when you're dying you speak to him and say like oh i was i, I was gay and i wanted people to know or like my uh my best mate was was screwing my wife and that kind of thing and he turns up at the funeral and he goes right, right stop everyone when in the middle of like the eulogy and all that and he gets up and says right this stuff needs to be said because he's Australian. Um, <laughs> just bonkers. And so he's, and basically, I just said, like, how are you doing, mate? And he answered all like 10 of my questions in like three minutes. And I was like, we've got an hour left now. I've got fucking no idea what to say. But it went all right apart from that. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did. It did. It did. Um, but no, yeah, so I made, um, oh man, it was terrible stuff because I was 22. I didn't, how old are you? Uh, 32. Okay, you're older than me. Yeah, you're 31 now. Yeah, 31. Yeah. Think of that, man. We're fucking old. <laughs> Can I swear on this? Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So yeah, you know, when you're 22, you don't know what you're doing. You just don't. And and you have to start somewhere. So I did, oh man, it was like coming up to Valentine's Day and I was just saying like, hey, I can be one of those guys who goes on the street and like talks to people to see if I can get a date, which seems outrageous now after the whole Me Too thing, <laughs> you know? But... And that wasn't a very, me, you know, even when I, I was single back then, of course, and, and I would never have done that off camera. But mm. it was amazing how the camera gives you this kind of uh, confidence to do that kind of thing. It probably gives so, you a purpose, doesn't it? So you're not doing yeah. it because you're an ass, you're doing it because the camera's there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. If I was just doing that, I'd be a mentalist. I'd be awful. I'd have to get arrested. But so I went and filmed that 
for the son, brought it in, showed the guy, the boss, and he was like, we don't need that. <laughs> so, except he's angry and Scottish, a bit like the guys from the thick of it. So he said it angrier and Scottisher. <laughs> so it was it was quite angry and Scottish. And <laughs> yeah, I just sort of put it on the website anyway, because I had access to all of that. And I was just like, I think I'm just going to put it on there anyway and see what happens. And just did. And he was aware of it, but he never really said anything. But that was, that was my first ever. The second ever one was even worse. That was me getting, I basically had a big back hair problem. By which I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I had a lot of back hair. So I found through a friend of, you know, there was some back, some not a back hair place, but a hair place where they remove it. Um, and they said they'll do it for free if I sort of do a video and put it in the sun. So that was the second one. They did it. And the thing is, it's all grown back now. Anyway, I've got loads of back hair. So. <laughs> was it painful? Again, the, uh, no, 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 it wasn't. It wasn't painful. It was like, I think they shave it. Oh, they weren't then, waxing or they were. No, no, no they shave oh. it and then it was laser. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the idea is you get like, eight goes of it or something like once every few weeks but it got a bit awkward after a few weeks because like i put it up on the internet already so they didn't really you know they were like why are we doing this still for this guy i, I got that feeling yeah you know? uh, so i only got four done and i needed eight or nine and it's all grown back like you know as bushy as ever oh okay would it have completely but, eradicated yeah. it is that the idea mm, I, yeah yeah oh, okay. i think a lot of people get that people get that like on facial hair if, they, if they're that way inclined I don't, I don't know what I mean by inclination, but if they're inclined to have no facial hair. Um, but yeah, that was the, you know, didn't do much for my back hair, but it was like, okay, I've been in front of a camera. Then I made, I went out to South America, lived in Argentina, Colombia for like seven or eight years, made, uh, yeah, a bunch of yeah videos for Fusion. They ended up selling them to HBO, so which was cool. It was like, oh, wow, that's happened. Hmm. But as far as I know, I don't know if they've ever, ever even been broadcast. I tried to email like, you know, info at hbo.com. And I was like, have my documentaries come out? And they were like, who are you? Uh, you know, they're just the sec, it was just some rece receptionist. So yeah, but those were, those were cool. That was like, I say, UFO hunting. Yeah. Sorry, I'm talking so much. I'm just trying to get all this out. No, no, you go ahead. <laughs> UFO hunting, infidelity, cheating and stuff. I went to see like how Buenos Aires was like lots of cheaters and all that kind of thing. Is that more Ends there having, than other places? I felt that in my first year and my first year in Argentina and I was still getting to grips with the language and stuff and to we, <laughs> it's funny because that was my first ever like big one where I got paid to do it and we promised Fusion the TV channel all this stuff and they were like uh they were like okay great they they called up like months later I just sent an email just on the off they called up a few is this is this Andrew Gold uh yeah do you want to do your um cheating thing we, we like that and I was like <laughs> shit <laughs> I never thought they'd actually reply you know yeah so I was like, okay. And you know, what I didn't realize was that trying to film a little documentary about cheating, it's almost impossible because nobody wants to be on camera. Oh, so yeah. it was really tough. Uh, I had found like some sort of uh, swingers club where they have a cheating night on like Thursday night or something. But by the time that Fusion had like given the green light, the swingers club had like closed down mm. completely disappeared i couldn't find it and i was i kept walking past it. i'm sure it was there it was just closed down so we really struggled and we ended up going like i got put on a radio show in argentina it's like their biggest radio show and it's called like in spanish like 
to to give or not to give, which is an expression for like, do you want to fuck? And people go on there and they, uh, you basically like, you love your friend's mum. So you call your friend's mum and you have to ask three questions. Like, how how are you doing, Mrs. Smith or whatever, <laughs> Lopez? And they're like, good. Don't know why my, you know, my son's friend's calling me. I'm good. Thank-. You have to ask three questions. And then the fourth one, you have to then say, the, the famous phrase from the radio, yeah. which they all know. And then the person has to say yes or no. And it's ridiculous. Like the mum of the friend will be like, yes. And then they meet and whatever. So it's all this cheating thing. When I was on there, it turned out Viggo Mortensen, the actor from Lord of the Rings, had been on just before me. Yeah. But because he, he lives in, he lived in Argentina. He grew up there. So he's, he's like fluent Spanish and all of that. Oh, okay. So he, uh, he was just on the phone though, but he sort of was asked a little bit about what my, my documentary and all that. And he said, Oh God, what, a, what an idiot this English guy is. I bet they're cheating more out there. That kind of thing in yeah. Spanish. Next thing I know, I was invited onto all these TV channels, um, like live, you know, the equivalent of have I got news for you sort of thing yeah. in, in Argentina. So I, I ended up going on all these shows and, uh, Oh God, like the English humor didn't translate at all. And my Spanish wasn't really up to it. And at one point, <laughs> They were, they were really having a go at me and they were going like, you know, uh, what, so the English don't cheat? What's, what, you think we're the only ones who cheat and all this stuff? And I was like, no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like, I, I don't really know what I'm saying or why I'm even here. We don't have radio shows based around it. Yeah, exactly. Well, we probably do. <laughs> Maybe, I don't <laughs> know. Must do. I haven't heard of them. <laughs> who was that? Yeah. No, we probably don't. We probably don't. Too polite, we do it in secret. <laughs> We do it in secret at least. That's what I told them. And they said, don't you like sex? What's wrong with you? And I was joking. Like I just went like, well, I don't know. I never tried it as a sort of joke, but they didn't know it was a joke. Uh, so it just, the conversation moved on very quickly. And I didn't know. They just put a banner underneath my name saying like English virgin for the rest, <laughs> the rest of the show. So I got people calling me that on the street in Argentina. Like, oh, it's the virgin for like months. <laughs> Mental. But that's how it started, and then, and then, yeah, then, then it was the exorcism film that you've uh, sent mm. you, and uh, I made a, a one about abortion. After that, that, I'm trying to sell at the moment, mm. and that's that's a long, very long, I think a ten to twelve minute answer to the first question you asked. Where's that one based? <laughs> also Buenos Aires, because was, I was still living out there. How did you discover the exorcist fella, and what drew you to make a documentary about him? Yeah, it was just the fact that I didn't want to make these five-minute films that I'd been making for Fusion. You know, I wanted to make a longer thing. I liked Theroux. I liked uh, the books of John Ronson. Um, I liked, uh, yeah, even Michael Moore or whatever, like all those kinds of things. I want to make these big things. And you can't really, you know, have something where you, I guess with Louis Theroux, you get this arc where like he meets people and then they eventually fall out um, (laughs) or they don't. And like they fight, you know, and they have a revelation and this and that. And you can't do that. In f- five minutes is more like, hi, I'm a reporter here. This is what I'm looking at. You know, I wanted a real thing. So I started emailing like, you know, the BBC and everything. Um, just, and I was looking like every day. I've been looking for like seven years, just every day, just on Twitter, on the internet, like what's weird near where I live and found out about this exorcist guy. Um, and he was just different to anyone I'd seen even other exorcists like that he was just he had this look in his eyes that was just horrible <laughs> that's how it felt to me anyway 
he was awful. He was like taking advantage of people. I felt I was I was already so biased before even going in. So oh really? You know, <laughs> it just there was something about him that was just insane. Um, and he was doing well. I, when I found out that he was playing the the music from the the film The Exorcist in his <laughs> yeah, mask, that crazy. <laughs> that's when I was like, uh, yeah, this is I've got to look into this guy. So I started like emailing the BBC and saying, look, here's the stuff I did for HBO, which was a bit of an exaggeration because I've done it for Fusion. And then did they buy it, the HBO? Yeah, but I don't know if they ever even broadcast it. Oh, okay, but they had some involvement. They at least wanted it for long enough to buy it. <laughs> yeah, as so, part of a series. I Yeah, it, 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 they saw... I mean, I still put it... My, my showreel, it says HBO. It doesn't say Fusion. Oh, so, okay. Oh, well. you got to fake it till you make it's it. It's all coming out here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what were you saying about the documentary? Yeah. So I had some meetings with the BBC, which was like, oh, wow, look, I'm talking to the BBC now. This was when I was like 27, so like four years ago or something. Um and they seem like, okay, Exorcist guy seems cool, blah, blah, blah. And then nothing, nothing happened for like a year, which I think is quite a familiar experience for most people trying to sort of break into that industry. So eventually I said to a friend of mine called David, who David Hayes, who's a director, camera guy. He's, he's an old friend from university. I, you know, he's, he's fantastic at what he does. And I said to him, do you want to come out to Argentina for a few months? You might enjoy living out here for a bit, you know, bring your girlfriend out here. Um, and maybe we can go and make this film. We don't have any money or any budget or anything like that, but, you know, so he said yes, which was remarkable because he wanted a bit of a change of life anyway uh, for a few months, came out and uh, yeah, we did it, just me and him. And we got like, you know, a couple of interns and stuff, uh, a guy called Damien, uh, who's, who's like, you know, who's like 20 or something to come and like hold stuff sometimes, but a lot, you know, do some of the sounds. Um, but most of the time it was just me and David and yeah we went and sort of hung out with the exorcist for a month or so and uh he was completely mental more than we'd imagined (laughs) yeah yeah i got that feeling too uh you said you felt a bit bad when you joined in but you were only doing the bells and it didn't seem that severe that one but maybe that's just how that was edited uh what was it like when you were there yeah as you say it was a bit of the editing it was so hard to make it uh I mean, because both of the exorcisms, we show two exorcisms in the film um, and both of them lasted over an hour, but you can't have that in the documentary, you know? So when I initially edited it, like me and David, I had to learn to edit and we'd spent, you know, and then eventually it got another edit by Villager Films who who took it on for post-production later, much further down the line. Um, and they were brilliant. But um, yeah, I, I originally edited it with like, a, you know, pauses and like 20 minutes later, half an hour later, that kind of thing. I think they decided in the end just go with like you know just show a few minutes that's all they need yeah but that was yeah that was probably the scariest weirdest time of my life like you know because i don't believe in anything paranormal but i'm, I'm sitting there watching you know with in the case of candela who was the, the main girl that we followed she was 17 years old i think um watching a girl like that who's had you know tried to kill herself and stuff having a mental breakdown before my eyes and knowing that they're not doing the right thing to help her. So that really was uh, difficult to watch. Yeah, hard. Yeah, was that uh, the one you were just talking about then? Was that the second one that was shown? Hmm. I th- uh, I think it was, yeah. At the beginning we showed, I haven't watched it in years now. Well, a couple of years, year and a half. Um, I think 
Natalia was the first one. She's a bit older, and that was just to sort of show what what this is all about. And then Candela was, yeah, this young girl that was going through a lot of issues and stuff. So she was the second one, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was uh, the second one was crazy because the way it looked, it looked like nothing was really happening for the first 20 minutes. And then he, I'm not sure whether this is just the way it looks on camera, but he, he kind of like did an elbow into her or something, and it looked like she was started being in pain. Is that, did you see that while you were there? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's so hard because you go into these things trying not to be biased whenever possible. And as I just admitted to you, I clearly was. And and my director, David, said to me a few times while we were filming, like, hey, come on, this is, you know, you need to rein it in a bit because, you know, and it's so hard because obviously you want to be open to everything, but but like to what point? To what, There's got to be, you know, if I, if I turn up and someone's killing everyone, I can't then just go, well, that's fine. So there's got to be a point where I do go, you know, and for me, exorcism was a line there where like, it's so obvious to me, there's nothing paranormal going on. So, I, but, but I don't know, to this day, I don't know if he was a, you know, if he knew he was a fraud or whether he, you know, uh, believes it all himself, believes the hype. I, I have no idea, but I felt like, oh, you know, and yeah, it did seem like he was pushing and pushing. And again, the, re the real exorcism was, exorcism was much longer. So that first 20, you know, it, re it was a long time before she reacted. It took a really long time. She was like so primed for it. She was so ready for the exorcism. She'd seen what exorcisms were like and everybody else's ones. And I was thinking like, looking at my watch, like, oh, it's not going to work. This is embarrassing. We've got the cameras and everything. Yeah. And I didn't know if that was good for us because it showed like, aha, what a fraud or like bad for us because you know, we don't get the, these incredible images of an exorcism happening. Um, yeah. But then she, yeah, sort of seems to be quite sudden after half an hour, just absolutely kicked off. And like, it went beyond anything. It was just absurd. Like the, some of the screaming we didn't leave in because it was just too much. It was just like breaking our audio. It was just, it was just mad. Wow. It, it was very uncomfortable to watch. Um, and then the film ended in the most weirdest way i've seen i really wasn't expecting it uh so talk me through how you felt when he called you into the room and said no cameras can't come in what what were you expecting to happen well so i'd been being cheeky as you saw for a while in, in a way that maybe now because so i was 28 when i found it. it was now three years ago it just took a couple of years to get the bbc to actually buy it you know so i don't know as i get older I do start to look at people like early through, he doesn't do it anymore, but like uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, for example, and the way that they, even when it's like, a, you know, the viewer might consider somebody to be evil. Uh, it's it's not nice to, to to lead people on that way and to, to trick them into, you know? So I was being very cheeky, asking him about, you know, vampires and this and that, always trying to do it in a way where he couldn't be sure I was making fun of him, I guess. Uh, which is how I am with friends of mine as well. And it winds them up, I guess. It's not a very attractive personality trait, but you know, the exorcist saw what it was like to be a friend of mine for about you know, <laughs> three weeks. So yeah, he, <laughs> yeah, he, he seemed okay with it all, you know? And I kept wondering if, cause I'm scared every time, I guess that's maybe how Sasha Baron Cohen feels as well. I'm every time I say something, I'm worried like, God, I hope he doesn't catch on this time and I'm pushing it more and more and more. As it turned out, those weren't the things that annoyed him. So I wasn't expecting, you know, we were trying to find him and he seemed to be avoiding us more and more and more for the last couple of weeks. I guess he'd, you know, he'd sort of had enough of us. He wasn't sure if, I, you know, we didn't know. We assumed it was like my questioning was annoying him. I don't know. 
what it was was completely different. So we tried to fight. We kept pushing his secretary. Can we have a meeting with him? You know, we need this. And I had planned to have at the end of the film, a big kind of confrontation with him, but it was going to be on my terms. So it was going to be like, we were going to film him that night where we had this big argument that you've referenced. We were going to film him that night and he has a big mass with all his followers. And it was huge. There were like thousands of people turning up. It was like midnight in the middle of nowhere. Uh, he had so many people just, they were, they were sort of filling out the streets and there they were like police there cordoning it off. It was just massive. Um, yeah. So yeah, we went to try and find him. And then he was like, uh, I just heard somebody say like, oh, he's, he, he wants to talk to you. Like, so I go back and as you see on the screen, he's yeah, like, sweet. no, this is just a conversation with Andrew. <laughs> nobody else can come in. I was shitting it. Oh yeah. I was, I was, yeah. Well, was part was of like, you like, this is where it ends. Did you think he was going to kill you? Yeah. 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 And that's partly because, you know, I've, I've never had to do anything scary in my life. <laughs> so I'm not used to that kind of thing. I had a really sheltered existence, like, like most people growing up in England, obviously not everyone, but most people, I suppose. Uh, and this was like, we were so far from home because it wasn't, you know, Buenos Aires is far enough from home. Uh, but this is like the suburbs and it's the impoverished suburbs. It's not, it's not the posh areas. Of course, it's like an area that, which is why, you know, he was preying on very vulnerable, impoverished people who didn't have education or access to medical facilities and things that could have helped them when they had depression and stuff like that. So this was really scary because it was literally just me, uh, David and this guy, Demian, you know, who's, he, he was a local, at least we had a local with us, Demian, David, couldn't really speak much spanish at all at that time and yeah it was like after midnight middle of nowhere no way for us to get back really uh they had been like calling us taxis and stuff before in previous times but they weren't going to do that this time so we were just like and we just thought he he got his crowd into such a fervor that he could have said to them you know these 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 three kids are a sacrifice that you have to you know it was unlikely but those things go through your mind and he locked me in this room and there was a bloke with him um i can't remember his name but do you, do you remember there's a bloke with a big he had a staff like a big uh like like the jafar had in aladdin um, um or maybe that's not shown on the thing but he had a purple robe he had white hair he did a thing on me where he put his hand on my head at one point oh yeah and yeah he, he was like the other priest yeah yeah, yeah. he's a big big fella mm. he's quite he's quite scary so he was in there a few of them were in there and i was just like what's this about but like my legs just turned to jelly um i never i don't think i've ever been that scared and it's obviously not a good evolutionary trait that we've had you know when your legs go like that because i can't i can't do anything can't run away um and yeah he really he, he said what have you been saying to the others about my relationship with paula who is a woman that one of the young women that he had taken from a psychiatric ward nearby who was suffering with schizophrenia and depression who he had convinced had demons and stuff and did an exorcism on her and took her to be by his side and, and now goes on holidays and things just him and her she is over 18 but it's clearly inappropriate for a priest to be doing that Hmm. Uh, what had happened long story short was that yeah an, another journalist who was sort of in with him had told him that i i had asked why they kiss on the mouth or something why why the exorcist and paula 
had been kissing on the mouth, which I hadn't even witnessed. I hadn't seen that or made any suggestion of it. He was just stirring things up. I think he wanted me out. He didn't want another journalist on his turf. Uh, it was a really bizarre thing to do. And he just started, yeah, screaming and screaming. And he didn't know, obviously, that we were still recording. The uh, you know We didn't have the camera because my friend David wasn't allowed in, but we had the my microphone was on. So we were picking up all of his screaming through my audio. And again, that was another thing that lasted in the film a few minutes, but that was a good hour or so. Oh, there really? Was a oh, wow. Oh, yeah, there was a moment where uh, David uh, wanted to come in or Demian, they tried to get in and he just slammed the door on them and was like, no, you're not coming in. And I was, yeah, I was petrified at that point and just trying to explain myself. And I just kept saying, look, you can watch all the, all the interviews back. I've never asked about you kissing on the lips. Although I wasn't entirely innocent because I had been sort of intimating to several people around the church, you know, what's going on with their relationship, which for a journalist who is not religious or whatever is a perfectly reasonable thing to ask. But in the house of the Lord or whatever it was, it wasn't. So he shouted us for ages. Eventually he did let us out, let me out, but then screamed, really took it out on Demian, who's just this young Argentine fella, because it was almost like he hated him for being with these enemies, these English guys. So it was just weird. And he started bringing up the Falklands War. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was well weird. <laughs> it was just like, if you're a priest and you're into like God and heaven and stuff, it's just such a bizarre thing to be obsessed with, it's, you know. But that's a big thing out there as well. So I sort of get that. Oh, okay. But yeah, we, we got out alive. And it was only in the taxi on the way home because we were gutted. Because we were like, uh, <laughs> we, we like I say, we wanted the final whatever to be after that. The idea was like, okay, in, you know, we'll, we'll film this mass and then in a couple of weeks, we'll, I'm going to start pushing him. I'm going to sit down and go, hey, what about your relationship with her? What about this and that? And he was going to maybe like get angry and walk out. That was the idea. And this was like, oh, we're never allowed back here now. This is the end of the documentary. He will never let us back. Uh, and we've lost everything. It was only like while we were trying to get over what just happened that we started to think, oh, this might actually be quite juicy. This is probably not something you get in most films about priests. And it is, as you say, it's an ending that probably nobody saw coming. <laughs> it might have worked out better, actually, the ending that way. Um, I kind of had a theory that's probably not true, but because he was avoiding you for so long, I think he was kind of looking for a reason not to have, like he probably saw something coming, like a a question that he didn't want to answer. And that's why he acted the way he did. Because even if you did ask someone, if he kissed that lady on the mouth. It's, maybe it is a big deal in religious circles, but it isn't really something you fly off the handle about. Well, it appears he was kissing her on the lips. I mean, that's, that's the thing. That's where that came from. That image came from. And, and again, I wouldn't, He's not going to listen to this. He doesn't speak English. So but we, we did have to worry about the legal issues and stuff about what we are uh, accusing him of. We had to send him a whole thing because that's how the BBC does it. They're so mm. careful. So we did have to send him like a whole bunch of things like in a, like translated into you know professional legal Argentine like Spanish. Um, I was like, these are the 11 things that the film is accusing you of. You have a right of reply. Um <laughs> And he just wrote back in capital letters like, I do not give my permission for this film to be made. I was hoodwinked or, or something mental like that. He <laughs> speaks in like medieval Spanish, you know. I love that. Yeah, I thought that last bit was just so revealing. He revealed himself in a way that you couldn't have revealed himself if you had asked the questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was brilliant. I, I, I totally agree. Well, at first, did you realise it was recording the audio when he was shouting at you or were you just like, oh shit, this is awkward. And then you realise afterwards, aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually remember. I'm going to say that I did realize 
and I don't even remember. Maybe when you were screaming at me, I was a bit like speaking to the yeah. mic, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't really remember, but I'm sure I did. And and what David, my film, you know, director was brilliant at was like he kept the camera recording the whole time as well. So that's picking up a bit of audio outside, and he's getting a bit inside as well. So we had both just in case. Mm. And he was he was really good because I've had times like when I was doing this abortion one. Uh, uh, we got like uh, this was this was a, a, a documentary later about abortion, and we got tear gassed and stuff while we were at this rally that we were filming, uh, water cannons and all that stuff, and everybody started running and screaming. It was a bit like what you imagine a terrorist attack to be. And I was working with somebody else, uh, Lucy De Cruz, who's a fantastic director as well. Uh, but it was a very different circumstance where like, so she like for a few seconds turned the camera off and just, we were just running and I was like running and scared out of my mind. And I was just like, Lucy, put the camera back on, yeah. <laughs> put the camera back on. And she was like, no, it's going to break. And I was like, I know, but because, you know, we're working with no budget and no insurance or anything like that. And yeah. So scary, do it, but also more fun and really probably like, uh, edgy. Okay. Do the camera phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Well, I think we had bits of that. That's, no, we didn't. We've used the camera, the phone before as well for stuff like I do think there's something to be said for like you, you look at some of the documentaries presented the documentaries made now t- today they're so sort of well produced and crafted and stuff and there's like 50 to 100,000 pounds put into it there's a huge team there and there's definitely something to be said when you watch like the early throughs and all that kind of stuff they were so sort of like on the fly and that's what a lot of the people that for the exorcism from that we met it was the first time I'm meeting them you know most of them it's just we open the door and there's someone there and we're like hello and then afterwards we'll ask them do you mind signing a whatever we're making a film yeah uh and i think hopefully that comes across as well and i think i, I much prefer making a film like that but people don't really do it like that anymore oh that's a shame was your abortion film in much the same way that this was shot yeah it was it was basically the exorcism film exactly that time um in argentina they were deciding whether or not to legalize abortion they were getting the senate to vote it had passed in congress legalization which would have been like historic in south america hmm. and it was to go to the senate vote and i had been for some time looking into this woman who they call out there the crazy baby lady and she's <laughs> a bit <laughs> she's a bit like um did you ever watch that oh, sorry i keep harking back to bloody through um but did you ever watch the westboro baptist church one yeah yeah so that the woman there shirley she's like the matriarch oh yeah yeah She's like the main woman. So this woman, the crazy baby lady, was very similar to that, I think. She was like our sort of shouty, crazy person. And she she had all these plastic fetuses that she would like run around to abortion centers and scream at people with. And I tried for months and months. And eventually she said yes to letting me sort of, you know, hang around with her as like a, you know, present her a documentary and go on the school run with her, meet all her six kids and all those. She's very Catholic, very, you know, middle-class Catholic or upper-class maybe even um and that was great it was like hanging around but again it was just me and a few people i found on facebook basically and i just said do you want to come and film it and i like all the bits that are like where it looks like something's gone wrong where you see a bit of the microphone come into view i like those bits although for the exorcist the bbc cut a lot of that out unfortunately but oh really do you know what i mean i like when the boom comes into view a little bit and you're like okay these are people making a documentary yeah yeah I like that too. <laughs> One thing I think we have in common is a morbid curiosity. Uh, how do you go about deciding which interviews you're going to conduct? I think it's like, it's really hard because I guess when I first started, it was like, what's the stuff I've watched that I've loved? And I, so I did something on UFOs. I'd seen Theroux do UFOs. Uh, 
but mostly it's just yeah you're just i guess looking for somebody who you is doing something that's so bizarre and potentially hurtful and you're trying to figure out why that is when i first started i think i made the mistake of looking for people who were just weird for the sake of weird and i think you see some of that on like vice or whatever and i quickly learned that quite rightly commissioners were like we're not interested in that because that's basically you know a victorian freak show mm. we're not interested in like um you know uh, swingers because they're swingers i mean that's not enough so it had to be like okay an exorcist which is mental it's like the most bizarre ridiculous thing even more so than you know swingers or whatever you might whatever else you know i got to take part in part of an exorcist which was crazy and fun and exciting but also obviously had that deeper uh context you know a subtext of you know what how he was taking advantage of people and how people were being swindled by him and and spending all of their money and not go, getting medical help so there was like this serious side so i think that's what really attracts me is when you've got something that's so like out there and ridiculous or not even ridiculous it could just be controversial or as you say a morbid curiosity but it has to have that layer underneath of like okay there are people suffering so the abortion again it was the crazy baby lady what you know what a ridiculous crazy person you know and if you go around buenos aires and you say to people do you know who the crazy baby lady is everybody knows who she is they they find it really funny that i've interviewed her and stuff <laughs> so she's like massive there but it wouldn't be enough if she was just a crazy baby lady it has to be that she is a big a fundamental part of like the abortion issue out there and and whether women are allowed access to you know and that was a hard one to do as well because i don't want to i'm trying to be neutral you know and i'm pro-choice as i think a lot of a lot of british non-religious people would be not not necessarily everyone but i had to try and understand both sides as well and that was really interesting for me it was to get inside her head and to understand that like people that have thoughts that are opposing to our own that run counter to our own are not necessarily bad people they, they think they're doing good and she thought she was doing good and you know so that that was really interesting so yeah that's uh always that's the struggle find someone controversial crazy interesting who i can't understand who i want to understand but but yeah with a deeper level uh it's interesting i just thought of a question when you were talking about the abortion documentary uh for the people you interviewed when do they consider it an abortion is like because in some cases religious people don't like the idea of people wearing condoms because then that's stopping the baby being born. And then some people consider abortion even like the morning after pill, which is is barely anything at the at that point. Yeah. So yeah, what what is their stance if you got that far into discussing that? I think I think it depends on the person, but I think the m most people it was it was uh, the actual sex, you know, like so so the morning after pill I think for most people is considered a no no, but not. But this this is the thing. This is this is the the contradiction is that it's believed that many many people in in Argentina, you know, despite it being illegal, are getting abortions, particularly those who are part of the aristocracy and perhaps more conservative and religious, who believe, you know, the anti-abort legal abortion people are the ones who are probably getting it for their families and things more often. That was, oh, really? yeah, that's that's the thing. But yeah, against it from day one, basically. And I had this debate with the crazy baby lady and she was saying, you know, from from the 18th day, don't you realize the baby has a beating heart? And I said, right, so the 17th day, then you should be able to have an abortion. And she was like, no, 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 no. So it's, you know, I think it's just one of those things I'm trying to understand it. And I think it's just, it's not really about, I think it's not really about abortion. It's about ideologies and a way of life that they feel they are losing. Uh 
and I, and I get that, you know, I'm try, I, I try to understand that and she, she could be, despite being hated by liberal or progressive people around the country, she could be my aunt or my grandma or something, you know, we all have family who disagree with us. And so I tried not to paint her as the monster that she's been made out to be over there. Well, was she quite a nice lady? Yeah, I think she was nice. I mean, she had us over and she, you know, gave us lunch and food and was very nice to us. And her kids clearly loved her. She was clearly a, a really nice mother. Um, and she really believed in what she was saying and doing, which which to me made a far more interesting film. You know, you, you don't want to make a film just about a monster. The The film is like, look, she's not a monster, but her views, in my opinion, are very, very harmful. Um and we couldn't agree in the end. In the end, we had a similar sort of fallout a little bit like The Exorcist. So I started <laughs> to think if it might. <laughs> I wondered if it might be me. But, All your films you know, going to end like that. <laughs> they could do. It makes for an exciting end, you know. I'm still trying to sell that one, but we've got it with a, a sales agent called Java Films, and they're trying to do it uh, on, you know, I've sort of left it in their hands. But yeah, I'd love for that to come out sometime. But <laughs> it was just because like, we have to ask these difficult questions sometimes. And basically, long story short, her father was the lawyer for a um, regime, I think a fascist regime, I think, a dictatorship in the 80s. I'm terrible. This is all, there's probably somebody going like, right, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. <laughs> I've said everything wrong. But I'm going to go with 80s dictatorship uh, called Videla. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he was the lawyer for them and sort of represented them. And they had this whole thing called, you know, the disappeared where like, you know, people were suddenly disappeared and babies were rehomed and just given away to rich families. And that kind of thing was going on. I've probably gotten it a little bit wrong, but she was, ba you know, so I said to it, isn't it hypocritical that you are the face of the anti-legal abortion campaign, given your family's history? And she didn't expect that because we'd been getting on really well. And it just, it really hit a nerve because I'm sort of bringing up daddy, you know, so. And, and did it go south like right away after that? Or do you think that was like one thing that was sort of like a setback? Well, she, this was the last, this was a time where I was able to, unlike The Exorcist, I was able to sort of end it on my terms. This was a case of like me and the director, Lucy, was saying for weeks, like, oh God, we're going to have to have that talk. We really don't want to have the talk, but we're going to have to. And we sat down with her and I knew I was going to ask those questions. Oh, okay. It so was this, this was right at yes. the end. Okay. It was right at the end. And she was different to The Exorcist because she's much more educated and eloquent and erudite and everything. You know, she knows her stuff. She's a proper person, you know? So it was more of like a back and forward, but she was getting very teary-eyed. Um, she wasn't happy. And she sent me a text message the next day saying, you know, that she gets sent every day by people who have, people send, people send her pictures of their abortions, uh, like placentas and stuff and fetuses. Um, yeah, every day is like a sort of fuck you to her and all those types of things. And she said, and yet she's never felt as betrayed as she did speaking to me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I know it's, it was it was awful. Uh, it was awful. Uh, that's a shame. <laughs> I feel like a right sneaky bastard. Uh, you got to ask the hard questions, I guess. Back to the podcast. How did you go about getting a paedophile uh, to chat to? <laughs> have you have you did you listen to that one uh, to i only literally listened to the clip that was on uh youtube oh, i didn't yeah. get around to listen to the whole episode 
Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so I went through a phase of like just putting the clips on YouTube, uh, like for five or six episodes and not the full episodes because I wanted people to go to like Apple or whatever it was. But um, now I put them, now I do put them on. But unfortunately, the pedophile episode was in that sort of time frame where I wasn't putting the whole thing up. But uh, but yeah, it's on Apple and all of those things, Spotify. But yeah, <laughs> that came from like a couple of years of research. That was, I mean, so I moved to Berlin for like several reasons. One was like I wanted another language. So German is my fifth language now. I, I'm, I love, yeah, I love languages. <laughs> so um, I wanted another language and my girlfriend is Argentine and she, you know, we wanted to move back to Europe and she was able to get like a working holiday visa in um in germany god i'm just thinking about how every question you ask i'm like so in 1991 what happened was you know it's fine it's interesting um, <laughs> yeah um yeah so we moved to germany you know we moved to berlin and again my mind is straight away like okay what's weird here you know i've done abortion <laughs> i've done exorcism what is the weird thing i mean obviously your mind straight away goes to nazis right neo-nazis and i have thought about that there are there are plenty of them still what neo-nazis uh, in germany yeah, loads, 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 um, loads, loads of communists as well. So you could look at both sides. Um, loads of neo-Nazis in Argentina as well, because so many Germans moved over there after the war. Um, Ger Germans and Jews, it was like it was like Nazis and Jews both moved. It was like Argentina were like welcoming everyone at that time. They wanted like an influx of population, uh, so they just had everyone. So there's loads of people like uh, where you, you'll get off and like schools where the kid would be like a Jewish kid and, you know, a, a non-Jewish kid and their grandparents, you know, one would have been a Nazi who fled and the other will be, you know, a Jew who was in, in the concentration, in a concentration camp. It's, it's really, you know, screwed up. But, but then at the same time, it, you know, it's their grandchildren, you know, they, they deserve they make some weird friends then. <laughs> yeah. Man, it's weird out there, but yeah, Germany, what's weird. Berlin has got uh, a clinic for pedophiles that is really controversial because it's pretty unique in the world because it doesn't um it doesn't uh, report pedophiles who come in for therapy so you go in for therapy and like they, they they can say the patients can say anything like i did this and this and this yesterday last week and the doctors can't report them in england for example a doctor would be struck off if he didn't report them like you, you have to report uh pedophile and stuff so is that they have to report them if they say they have these urges or if they actually commit the crime i've got the impression that it's even if they say they're having these urges oh, which wow. is actually a bit counterproductive yeah i i totally agree i think it should be something people are getting therapy for definitely yeah and you don't want exactly. the disincentive but yeah carry exactly. on yeah so that's the issue and then so in england doctor would be struck off in america or australia the doctor would go to prison for not reporting them so like the doctors don't want to know it doesn't mean it's easy in berlin for these pedophiles to get help but uh you know because there's still like people graffiti outside the clinic all the time like hang the pedophiles and stuff like that which is again so counterproductive because these are the ones who hopefully are not abusing children they're the ones who are going in for help so that they don't. And if you stigmatize them by saying, hang the pedophiles, you're indirectly probably contributing to more children getting abused. It's just so ridiculous. But but also complicated. I get the other side as well. Like these doctors are knowing that these people, some of them might be offending. They know that and they're sending them back out onto the streets to do whatever they want. So I get both sides of it. But yeah, I started like going, okay, can I make this into my next documentary? And I did do some filming with a couple of pedophiles just 
uh, with a friend of mine out here, like just to see, test the waters. And I might still see if I can sell something like that. But the, the feeling I was getting is it's so hard, obviously, to get these people to appear on camera. Like, obviously, they don't okay. want to do that, particularly the younger ones. Oh, older ones are a little bit more prone, uh, open to doing that because it's like their lives have been lived. Um, <laughs> it's now in the open anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just like when you're 60, it's like, you know, if you're 20, I mean, this particular guy in the podcast, so I got to him through, like, I ended up like, oh, yeah, so I decided I'd write a book. So I've written a book. It's about 60,000 words. And I'm, I got it to a sales, a literary agent, and I'm hoping something will happen in the next year with it. But it's just a very difficult subject to sell. Nice. It's just, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really tough one. And it's like, uh, it's good you've been busy. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's something to do, man. I mean, some of the people I've met is just like, and, and that's what I enjoy. It's what you said, morbid curiosity. You know, I'm hanging out with like a few months ago, I was out in some village in Northern Germany somewhere, just hanging out with a 25 year old girl who's attracted to babies. And I'm just walking around a park with her, like, this is a weird life I live. And she's getting married to a 27-year-old man who's also attracted to babies. Ooh. That was weird. That is bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it was. it's weird. It's weird, man. The whole thing. And it, but you also get desensitized to it. So there'll be people listening to this who are just like, what? You know, but it's been two years of my life now. Uh, I've only, I, I, I try to only meet and hang around with and write about the ones who say to me that they would never offend. Mm. Uh, I don't have, I'm not that interested in the ones who do. It's a more of an open and shut case. It's like, these are just bastards. You know, I'm not interested in just horrible bastards. I'm much more interested in these people trying to resist their urges. So yeah, through that, I, you know, started getting into their forums. And again, these are non-offenders forums. So there's no like, there's no like links, you know, the links to like child porn, which they call, which doctors will call child sexual abuse material because child porn sort of suggests that it's, you know, uh, consent, you know, that it's pornography that's being made, but it's child sexual abuse material. Um, yeah, there's none of that allowed. You know, you'd be instantly banned from the forum if you, you know, these are all virtuous pedophiles who, who would never offend. And through that, I met one person and another and another. And then there was this, this young woman who, who liked babies and, all this stuff. And then eventually I got to this guy who I did the podcast with called Silas. That's it. I don't know any of their real names, but he's 18 and he is the head boy uh, of his school. Uh, and he's a pedophile and he spoke all about being attracted to the children around him. And, and here's where the, the ambiguity lies, because I think, you know, most reasonable people should be able to say like, you know, if it's somebody who's attracted to children, but they do everything in their power, not to be with those children then then those people are you know fine by us you know great it's, it's good that they're not doing that the thing is most of these people that i've met are not doing everything they can to not be with children in fact they're doing the opposite they are going out of their way to be close to them to be near them and they seem to be using some sort of cognitive bias uh telling themselves this is exactly what Silas said, actually. He said that he keeps a lot of the kids at his school around him. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. Like, if I wasn't around them, I'd be so sad and depressed that I'd be more likely to offend. And I was like, but Silas, that makes no sense. If you weren't around them, the fact that you are near them, if you're not around them, you can't offend, you can't abuse them. And he just didn't seem to grasp that. So all of them seem to be working in conditions where they're like either a teacher. One guy I met was just, he's one of the top guys in terms of like, being 
uh, he's one of the admins for the message board. And he seems like a very nice guy. And he's got, you know, he, I don't, I believe he would never offend. But when I met him, he was babysitting uh, children at a swimming pool. And it's like, you know, firstly, why did you meet a journalist that you're trying to show that you're a non-offender to at a swimming pool when you're babysitting children? But secondly, what are you doing? Like, I've never done, I've never found myself in a position where I'm babysitting children. So I think they have to meet us halfway. It's like, we need to be more accepting and sort of, and go like, hey, you can go to therapy, great. But they need to also start being like, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to accept that I'm going to have a life that's not hanging around children. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, that's one thing I found with even just listening to the clip and he was talking about um, sort of hanging around with the kids at his school. Yeah, I, I felt very uncomfortable, even though he wasn't abusing them. I still, mm. it made me, that's the most uncomfortable I felt like listening to one of your conversations. In another podcast you did was with a, is it a psychopath or a sociopath? Uh, it's roughly the same thing. I mean, she said that the, there is a difference. She This was uh, M.E. Thomas. Uh, who, that's her. That's her pseudonym. And she wrote a book about being a psychopath. I can't remember what it's called now. Confessions of a Sociopath. Yeah, that's it. So she wrote that book and she said they're different and that one of them is born a psychopath or sociopath. I can't remember which way around it is, but one of them is born that way and the other is like so badly treated in the first two or three years of their life that they become that. I've heard that that's not exactly right from other people. Uh, and a lot of people have said, look, one word is more used in America. And, and some people say it's the same thing. I think John Ronson in his psychopath test said it's the same thing, basically. She was great, though. She was. But she, again, this I wasn't that interested in speaking to someone who's like, I'm a psychopath. I'm going to kill you. You know, she was much more interesting than that to me. Although some of my viewers, listeners sort of message going, almost seeming a bit disappointed because she oh, wasn't yeah. like that. She was like, I'm, I'm, I don't have any empathy. And I said to her, you know, do you, would you care if I died right now? Somebody came in and started strangling me. And she said, like, no, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't really, I wouldn't really care. But she, no, she was like, Andrew, you don't understand. Like, <laughs> it's, I just don't care. She starts her book with like this really filmic and horrible, disturbing chapter um, where she just talks about, she's like, look, this is the best way to explain to you from the beginning who I am, you know? And she's at home and she goes outside in, in her swimming swimming pool or whatever. I don't know if she's really rich or anything, but a lot of Americans have swimming pools. In her pool, there's like a dead, no, not dead, a struggling opossum, right? Trying to get out. And it's like, you know, really little baby opossum is trying to get out and it's struggling and swimming and stuff. And she goes to get the net, you know, to get it out or whatever for the pool. And then she sort of gets to it. And then she just very slowly starts pushing it down underwater. And then it sort of escapes and wiggles free. And then she pushes it down again. And then it wiggles free again. This happens three or four times. And then she just gets a bit bored, um, walks off and goes out and leaves it. So so the point, the point being, uh, it wasn't like, I must kill the opossum. It was just like, oh, my life's going to be easy if I just kill it right now. And then the realization of just, no, it's not actually easier. It keeps escaping. I'm just going to go out. She came back later and it was dead at the bottom of her pool. So, and she was like, okay. <laughs> and just, you know, got it out then, went about her day. So most psychopaths don't need to go around killing people. They're not interested in it. Many of them become CEOs or presidents of the United States and that kind of thing. I remember in the interview or just before the interview, you said you felt very nervous during it. What was so nerve wracking about the... <laughs> The discussion 
there is a very small part of me and I, I'm just a paranoid guy, you know, and I, I felt paranoid with the exorcist. I felt paranoid with, you know, abortion, whatever, like all the time. And with her, it was the case. I mean, she told me that there were like, there's a psychopath forum where they all sort of get a little bit obsessed with, um, you know, they've, they've said to her, for example, other psychopaths have said, I found out who you are because they're all anonymous, a lot of them. And they're like, I've tracked you down. I know who you are because they're just for the hell of it. They're bored. Why not? And I felt like if I said or did the wrong thing, something that really upset her, it's very unlikely, but maybe she would just sort of have nothing to do one day and think, I wonder where this guy lives. And I've not been hiding my identity. Everybody I talk to, I say, I'm in Germany. I'm in Berlin. This is where I am. People could very, it wouldn't be very difficult to track me down. So with most people, you go, well, that's what a ridiculously paranoid thought. But this is somebody I'm talking to who I know for a fact that she is a, she is a psychopath. So while she doesn't feel the need, as I've just said, to, to, to hurt anyone, why not? Something to do one day, she could come and track me down. If I've, if I've pissed her off, why not? So you were worried about asking the wrong question? Yeah, in case she wanted to kill me. Uh, you'd have a history of asking the wrong question. <laughs> exactly. So if what had happened with the exorcist and, and the abortion crazy baby lady, if that had happened with her... You know, fortunately, we were in different continents. But even so, yeah, what what might she have done? Or even if it's not as simple as coming to kill me, you know, people, if if you really want to, you can hack into whatever, destroy someone's life, plant uh, child abuse material. You know, all the worst things you can imagine. You you can ruin someone's life if you're really if you really want to. Quite easily fuck with someone from far away. Yeah. Oh, okay. Did you feel any relief when she said that she doesn't get easily offended? I think I must have. I don't remember that well, but I must have felt some relief. But like I was always, I was treading carefully while also aware that like, you know, there's people listening. They want me to ask the right questions and everything. So, yeah. Is there any topics or guests that you would like to cover that you, for some reason, have like a hesitation to do so? Yeah. um, I've been thinking about... I mean, look, the most, the, the sort of the topic that pisses everyone off, no matter what side of, of the argument you're on, is trans right now. The trans stuff, that's really such a hot topic. Um, and I, I don't feel very strongly either way. You know, I get the feminist argument, I get the trans argument, and I, I get that those two in a lot of people are completely incompatible, you, you know. Uh, and I wouldn't want to tell a staunch feminist who says like trans people are stealing our rights. I wouldn't want to tell them, oh, shut up. You know, who the hell am I to tell them to shut up? Equally, I wouldn't want to tell a trans person with all that they have to go through like, oh, shut up, you know? So that's a really tricky one. And there is, there's one or two people I'm following on, on Twitter. So there's somebody, uh, this is a trans person called Yaniv someone. Do you know who that is? No. So she now, this was a person who transitioned to, to being a woman uh but i don't female, think yeah yeah i don't think uh fully done i don't know um is quite a horrible person and <laughs> and that doesn't mean you know that's no reflection on the trans community at all at all she is like at the extreme end of it of of everything and she goes to like waxing parlors and stuff and like says like wax this oh i have yeah. heard of that case yeah okay yeah she goes, she basically goes, she knows they're going to say no because they don't do male genitalia, you know, she knows they're going to say no. And then she starts like a lawsuit and a whole PR movement against them. And she's done this several times. And there's also rumors about, you know, inappropriate behavior between like her and like children. And there's all sorts of stuff like that. 
So like, again, th- this is the issue of podcast versus documentary is that when you're doing a documentary, you're studying a subject. It's, it's clear for the viewer. I'm going in to meet the exorcist and this is a subject I'm studying. When you invite someone as a guest onto your podcast, it's much more like you're platforming their views. Oh, do you reckon? Okay. Well, I think like as well, like there's also the aspect of like, if you're going to debate someone and you're on like the BBC or you're on ITV or whatever it is, it's usually that the BBC have asked two people with different opinions to come on and debate each other. This is like the the person themselves, it's me emailing them saying, hey, you don't know me, but I'm a big fan, blah, blah, blah. Do you want to come on my podcast? And then they come on and then I'm horrible to them. It's not nice. Would you be more comfortable if you were honest with them say, I, I completely disagree with you, but I would quite like to have this discussion. I think that's how I might have to send the email in, in, in the first place. Yeah. And, but even then, that's, it's not how I like spending my time. I don't want to sit there all nervous before the phone call. Like I'm nervous enough going to an exorcist's church, you know, but at least there's other things and it's not all about me. It's like I'm filming them and I happen to be there. In a debate, it's about me. So the problem with having all sorts of like extremist people are like, oh, you should have like a flat earther. You should have a, uh, all these controversial people. The problem with that is like, they are, even though they might be wrong according to all like science, they are going to know their subject much better than I am. So they're going to be much better prepared. They've had like 10 years of being obsessed with this topic. <laughs> I don't have a clue. You know, I know that the earth is round, but I don't know the arguments. I know enough to say, well, what about this and what about that? You know, but they might win. They might, they might, <laughs> you know, and that doesn't look good if my podcast is promoting, <laughs> like, you know, so with a documentary, it's different because I get to, after every scene, I get to do a voiceover saying how I felt about each scene. So there are ways of doing it, but I think the podcast is a really difficult medium. And I think that's actually a big flaw with the podcast medium because you do see all these people. Most interview podcasts are like celebrities having other celebrities on and they're all sort of patting each other on the, on the back. It's a little bit like the, you know, Graham Norton or something, you know, so that's the TV equivalent hmm. that you don't have. Graham Norton doesn't have someone on and then just go, you bastard, you know, <laughs> it's all... Let me promote your work. You're giving up your time to talk to me. I'm going to promote your work. I'm going to, you know, it, right now, if you suddenly said to me, like, I think what you did was out of order on The Exorcist, it would, it would be a bit, be a bit <laughs> awkward, wouldn't it? You know? That just reminds me of when you uh, were trying to test the psychic power play, and you're like, was it your book shit? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, ah, nah, <laughs> you know I don't mean it though. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I was panicking. I always remember one of my earliest memories. Well, it wasn't that early, but I was like 11 or something. And I went in, I had one of these fake cigarettes that have got like, I don't know, cotton wool inside them or something. Something seems to come out of the cigarette. So I went and showed my mum, and I was like, look, mum, I'm smoking. And I remember just the look in her eye. It just stayed in my head forever. And I, I was within, even before I'd done it, I, I was just like, oh, it was a joke. It's a joke cigarette. It's not real. It's not real. And I, I had a flashback of that when I was speaking to the psychopath. Because I was just like, your book shit. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> it's not. You find that's an issue in your everyday life where you, you make a joke and then you and then you're like, oh, is that going to land? Yeah. 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 You have to. I, I guess it's just, I don't know. The, the older I've gotten, and I think this happens to everyone, you know, you get a bit less cheeky. I think cheekiness in itself, to an extent, I mean, a lot of it comes from boredom, doesn't it? You know, the kid at school, I was like that at school. I was always, and that's why I enjoyed doing it with an, an exorcist or, you know, somebody that I considered before to be a bad person. Uh, it was boredom, you know, you just want to be cheeky and stuff like that, but it's also attention seeking. Um, and it's a bit mean. And I think the older you get, the less 
the less you need to do it i think so i don't do it as much as i did yeah <laughs> this is it's a way know. of uh, yeah, connecting sorry. with friends as well though yeah yeah well that's being lost isn't it i mean that's another discussion that's the whole sort of woke thing and this stuff i definitely agree that there are things that you should be able to say to a close friend that you shouldn't necessarily be able to say publicly you know um and i quite i quite enjoy having a friendship when a friend of mine says something that is a bit horrible i mean we were talking i'm a big tottenham fan and i was talking to my brother and my dad the other day uh messaging and we we're annoyed because you can't get fans in the stadium and i said uh if you could let's say a million people die of coronavirus but you don't know them and tottenham get to have fans back in the stadium would you accept that <laughs> and they were both like my brother said no comment i think <laughs> which means yes i mean obviously i mean probably not in real life right but you you want to be able to have that kind of joke and yeah, that kind of yeah. thing but you wouldn't tweet that because no, no. <laughs> end of your career you wouldn't go on a podcast and say it would you <laughs> just did whoops <laughs> uh, that's so funny uh so you consider yourself an atheist now yeah yeah but yeah, you're yeah. from jewish heritage uh what was it like growing up jewish um how was it it was it, you know it, like anything in a sense it's like it's what you know um i never went to like a jewish school there were a lot of jewish schools and stuff and i hate all of that i hate any sort of religious school i would i would go as far as to say you know i as i've said before i want to ad adopt this persona of like hey everything's okay the abortion lady she's got her point of view and so on at the same time, I'm almost an aggressive atheist. I find religion, uh, it really winds me up like, like very few other things, whether it's Judaism, Islam, Christianity, any of them, or just cults, it's all the same. Um, they wind me up and, and yeah, it wound me up. I don't know. So as a kid, yeah, I went to school with, you know, it was really multicultural, whatever. So, and it was just part of life, which is quite nice, I suppose, actually looking back, you know, there were, there were probably, you know, a fifth of the school were Jewish and a fifth were Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, and some sort of weird Christian people, I suppose. You can say that, can't you? Isn't that funny? That's the one I'm allowed to say is weird. <laughs> some weird Church of England people, but they're no, they're no weirder than the other ones, but I wouldn't dare say the other ones are weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can say what you want about Christianity, which is uh, which is mad. Political correctness, come No, so <laughs> yeah, it was it that was all fine, and like it was, it's a really weird thing. Like I quite enjoyed some of the parts of it, but you get to thirteen and you get to have a bar mitzvah, um, which is the you know coming of age thing when you're thirteen. And I had to learn, you know, Sunday school. I fucking I hated it. I had to go every Sunday and learn about like Noah and the whale or whatever it is, like Jonah and the whale. Noah and the whale's a band. <laughs> Uh, so I, I hated every second of that. And it was also another time for me to be cheeky. And, and it was a problem with, I had with authority as well. I always remember one of the first times where I really started to question it. I remember being in a synagogue and I was chatting away to someone, as you can probably imagine, I'm just chatting away all the time. I was like 12 or whatever. And I'm just like chatting away. And like somebody turned around and was like, shh, have some respect. The rabbi is talking. And I was like, I mean, fuck you. I really, and I was 12 and I felt <laughs> anger. What the rap, what's he talking about now? <laughs> you know, somebody, I can't even, what, who survived a flood or some, some ridiculous thing right now, but he's doing it in Hebrew. So no, none of you even understand what he's saying. I was livid. 
I was, how dare he tell me to have a, if it was like at that time it would have someone I looked up to would have been I don't know David Beckham if he was talking and someone said have some respect so I'd go like all right I'll listen to what David has to say <laughs> about uh you know Jonah and the whale uh, but because it was like oh man yeah the rabbi I, and that was I think when I first started to realize myself how much I hated the whole thing I hated it uh but I was also aware that when you have a bar mitzvah, you often get a lot of money, right? Because it's like it's like a mega birthday. It's like a birthday times 10. So, you know, it's not just from your family. Like, you know, when you were a kid and you had a birthday, people might give you like an envelope with what, tenner, 15 quid, right? You you can't go to a bar mitzvah and not give 50 quid. If you give 40 quid, you really don't look very good. And that's everyone at the whole party. So you end up trying to convince your parents you want a huge party. <laughs> Just like, yep. And they're like, you weren't even friends with that kid. I was like, I was very friendly with him. Thank you very much. And he's going to, his whole family should come actually. So each give 50 quid. <laughs> Every member. <laughs> yeah. So you come out of it as 13. And it, it was annoying. You've got to work for, you work for it basically by learning Hebrew, <laughs> which is bonkers. You don't learn to speak it. You learn to read it. So I can't, I can't to this day, I can't speak a word of Hebrew, but I can read what it says or, you know, the signs, the hieroglyphics or whatever it is, the symbols. And do you know what those um, things say or you just know that that's the noise? That it's, I know the noise, right? Yeah. So I could read it out, if, not even that well, because they do a weird thing where they hide all the vowels in, in like grown up writing. It's like, it's like almost like for stabilizers for the bike where mm. you, they show the vowels, which they do with dots. And then the dots are all removed for the vowels, you've just got a bunch of consonants and you have to know because you recognize the word and the context where the vowels are. That's pretty strange. Which, which is strange, but like if you imagine it in English and you get sent a text message with all the vowels removed, you would still get it. Oh, it's like if you write text like T, X, T. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And if you, all the words that have would be H, V, that kind of thing. Yeah. Obviously, we're not used to that, but if we were used to it, that would be fine. You could get away with that. Uh, so, so which means that if I were to see like grown-up Hebrew now that doesn't have the vowels, I could basically guess what the word sounds like. But every vowel is like uh, you know. So I just like that, and they'll be like, no, it was beda boda, you know. So I'm not getting the vowels. But you know, it's a cool thing to learn. The thing is, you learn that it takes years as a kid to learn that, and you're still no not as far as you are already with like Italian because Italian you can already read out what it all says. You don't know what it means, so you know, years of Hebrew for that. Um, but you work hard. So you're like, I deserve this money. And then you get, I don't know what it was, but it was, I got a good couple of grand, which at 13, you're like, you know, it's insane. So, and then some of the kids, cause you talk about it and there were some kids who were like from wealthier backgrounds, you know, so some are not, and they only end up with like a few hundred quid and you're like, Oh God, don't want to go to his bar mitzvah. And then some <laughs> people getting, getting like mad money. You know, it's a whole spectrum of people you, you, like in any life, any walk of life. But, but yeah, yeah. So the bar mitzvah got loads of money. My parents made me put it in like a savings account. So I was seventeen, but I bought a second-hand car with it, so I was happy. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, that was cool. Long story short, I fucking hate religion. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any uh, criticisms you have of Judaism in particular? I mean, the Hasidic Jews, yes. I mean, I mean, and, that, and that's worrying as well because I don't want. I mean, look, Jews are Jews are very secular. In general, mm. I mean, they, they really are compared to some other religions, uh, which again, I wouldn't want to name for fear of being killed or whatever. But <laughs> but there are other ones where like... I could take a guess. Even, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there are ones where I've got friends who who are a part of one of those religions, and you know, even when they are, they consider themselves secular and do all the secular stuff. They still have like you know a religious book at their home and stuff like that. Whereas a lot of Jew- I mean, I've got a few because Northwest London there's a lot of Jewish people. I've got quite a few Jewish friends, and like you know, if one of them had a Jewish some sort of prayer book in their house, they'd never hear the end of it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. But people, you know, so it's more of a culture. It's more of like a Woody Allen and a Seinfeld. It's more of that kind of comedy. It's like a little group, um, which is great. And I love that. But it's that's probably, if I was going to criticize the secular Jewish thing, it's, it is a bit of an exclusive group, you know, in that sense. Uh, and it, it can feel that way, depending on where you grow up. Uh, but I've known friends of mine say who, who felt like they were outside of that and they wanted to be in. Uh, there are people like that, but there are people like that from every culture as well um any sort of minority who group together can can stick together like that i mean i mean that that's what happens with uh you know immigrants i mean so it would have been that my great grandparents would have come over i don't even fucking know where they were from but because it all got lost it all gets lost but it would have been some ghetto in russia so they would have come over with nothing been on this you know just whatever with like you know poverty line and then three generations later there's still just a little bit of a cliqueiness and i guess with every generation that that sort of disperses a bit more uh the hasidic jews i always worry that other people who have never met jewish people will will think that that's what jewish people are like and they are just a tiny tiny it's like the jehovah's witnesses compared to just a typical person who's from a christian background Mm. or whatever so that's it, it is that extreme the difference and i had never met one until about a year ago because uh, I was looking into maybe making a documentary and I went and met a couple of them and, you know, nice enough people, but I think it's, <laughs> I want to be careful because I did do uh, a, a talk with an ex Hasidic Jew on my podcast. Yeah, I heard that. And Yeah, so she's she's lovely and she's just, I felt terrible for her because she basically described it as being raped every night because, you know, but then there are people within that sect, they don't like being called a sect, but I mean, they are one, so... They're they're a cult, they're a sect, as far as I'm concerned. And there's an arranged there's arranged marriage and stuff like that going on. They will say it's not, but it is. There are problems with the education system there. It's just it's like any extreme religion. And yeah, I think it's I think it's dreadful. Um but yeah, that's my that that would be my criticism of, of Judaism, I guess. Okay, well, what's your view on circumcision? Yeah, complicated. I mean, I don't, I don't have any reason why I would get my own children circumcised. You know, some people say, uh, "Oh, but he has. To, what if he does? You know, he should look like his daddy." And I thought, you think his penis? Like, <laughs> I see. Any time it's appropriate to say, or it seems appropriate to say something like that. <laughs> yeah, well, his penis will look like his dad's penis, and otherwise he won't be happy. I mean, I don't know what my dad's penis looks like. I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't think he knows what my penis looks like since I was a very young boy. <laughs> and I just think that's mad. Does it usually come up. <laughs> yeah, we, we live in a world now where it's like you could have, you know, lesbian parents, gay parents, or you'd be adopted from both different races and stuff. And we're worrying about like someone's penis looking like the dad's penis. It's just a very old fashioned thing. I don't like anything that's like, oh, you know, when I say, but why do we do that? I was always questioning that. That's probably why I became this kind of journalist. Uh, I was always saying, why do we do this? Why are we you know, celebrating Passover when I don't believe any of the stuff actually happened to do with Passover? Yeah, I. at the same time, you know, I'm used to it looking like that. So it feels like it's a bit prettier. But do I want my child's penis to be pretty? 
it's a weird thing to think about <laughs> so yeah i'm completely undecided i think it's one of those things where like you know if the mother of my children really wanted it one way or the other i'd be like you know because it hasn't it hasn't bothered me I, i'm fine with it i don't wish for change apart from size and you know <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is you know so yeah i don't have strong opinions about it really Oh, okay. I still, I still managed to speak for about eight minutes about it, though, didn't I? No, that was good. Yeah, I thought that was a very nuanced approach you took to it. I, I hear of it described as like a freedom of religion discussion. I feel like, who was it who originally did it? Was it Abraham? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if it was him, then it became not freedom of religion in my mind when he started doing it to other people's penises. But that's just... <laughs> <laughs> what was he doing running around cutting people's penises? It was like, the, like a haircut. Amazing caught on, really. <laughs> It is. It's the whole thing's bonkers, man. It is bonkers. But then, like the whole of America does it. Oh yeah, it's very common actually in America, isn't it? Yeah, more common than not. More, more, more common than not. It, it's yeah. So it's just that. That's another reason. If it was only religious people who did it, I think I'd be like, well, I'm not doing this then. But Americans do it like as a stylish thing, I guess. So I, I'll tell you this. I wouldn't. I'll put it this way. I would not. I would fight very strongly against any mother of my, even if mother of child wants that, uh, having a rabbi come over what you know doing it with a blessing and because i think it's a particular kind of rabbi called a, a moyle who comes and does it i think my dad tells the story like he passed out watching the whole thing and i thought this is just you know i don't know how it's done in non-religious circumstances but if, if if it was insisted that that be done or if i decided having really researched it that it be done then you know it would be the non-religious way it'd be in a doctor's or something <laughs> well, mate, can uh, yeah, you do yeah. me a favor <laughs> I'm just not having some religious person, you know, whether he be Jewish, Christian, Muslim or whatever, popping over and, you know, doing anything to my child's penis. <laughs> that can be the trailer for, yeah, for this. That'll be a little quote. <laughs> uh, Why have I got a pen and pencil in my hand? This is weird, isn't it? What, am I, what have I been writing for an hour and 22 minutes? Nothing. Squiggles and things. Oh, it looks cool. You've been writing any responses? <laughs> I want to say this. No, I'm just, I'm just sort of scribbling. When, when I'm, when I'm interviewing, I am writing stuff because I'm going. Oh, I must when he finishes talking in seven minutes, I must ask him this thing because I write that down. But that's, it's just normal now to have this pencil in my hand. <laughs> You're getting used to it. Do you, have you had many other interviews of you being interviewed? I was on. Do you know who Ian Lee is? No, no, I don't think so. He was, he was, he's quite, he was quite a big uh, radio personality, and he recently got fired though. But I, well, he, you know, I don't know, from talk radio. But he started his own thing on Twitch. Um, but that doesn't really count as an interview because I saw they were on, and I just called in as like a viewer listening. You can just call in. Oh, okay. And, and they knew they knew me from before, so I was like, hello. So that sort of counts, but not really. Otherwise, it was just one guy, Vincent Freeman was his name uh american guy who he was quite interested in like the whole thing of exorcism and, and anti-woke stuff as well that was a few days ago oh okay was has he got a youtube channel yeah he's got i think it's just on youtube you know i don't even know i'm sure he'll tell me when it comes out because that was only a few days ago or a week ago and obviously yeah it's something i'd like to sort of start doing more get on the circuit or whatever it be and you know <laughs> It, look, at the end of the day, it's quite fun to talk about yourself, isn't it? I mean, that's <laughs> that's the thing. You don't, I don't get the opportunity. I, I'm interviewing people, after me, and I just say a few words, and now it's like I'm getting it all out right now. 
and it's nice speaking to an English person as well because I think yeah I, I I can be myself talking to you mm. uh, a lot easier than with the Americans I'm still enjoying talking to them there's no, you know they were completely fine and nice and stuff but I I'm I'm almost like talking a second language you know what I mean I'm just making sure that everything I say translates to American oh okay you you worried that they wouldn't understand the jokes like in when you said yeah. you were a virgin on TV. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know what it's like when you're talking to an American, you can't quite, it's, they probably would understand all the jokes, but there's always something in the back of my mind. that's like, it's, it's aware that I'm talking to a foreign person. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, what have you learned about human beings, if anything, from your interviews you've done? I think that thing I was talking about, about, about the abortion, the crazy baby lady, that was a big moment for me because, because I first cut that film um, and I wasn't being entirely sincere with myself and I was very pro-choice, which I am, but it was like, it was very one-sided and I showed it to a friend of mine because I didn't even realize I was doing that. And I showed it to a friend of mine who, who did say that. And he said, look, you know, this isn't you. And it, and it was true. And it's sort of, it's one thing to say from the beginning, okay, I'm going to be really neutral. And it's another thing to sort of look at what you've done, you know, with different eyes a year later and being able to really enjoy her company. I mean, when would I otherwise get the opportunity to really be enjoying the company of someone with such different views from myself? And I found she was nice. She was lovely. She thought she was doing the right thing. She's a nutter. She's a complete nutter. Uh, she's harmful. She has you know, horrible views, I think. She's a good person. And the more I started thinking about that, like, yeah, I... I've, I don't want to judge anyone. I don't want, I just, I find it hard with the exorcist, for example. I do find that hard. And I almost want to approach myself for that. Uh, there's there's a culture war going on right now, as we've seen on like Twitter and stuff, you know, and it's all just like, oh, this person said a thing, now they're evil. I'm like, come on. I mean, look, I know now from doing the research that only 1% of the world are psychopaths. Most other people... 99% of the 7 billion people on the planet have empathy for other people. I think I think we both sort of underappreciate the empathy people have because we start telling everyone, oh, you know, J.K. Rowling's evil because she said this or that. So she's probably not evil if she was able to create this incredible world of whatever, you know? Not that that is, you know, Hitler also was an artist, so. But, <laughs> Not quite as successful as J.K. Rowling, though. <laughs> well, you could, it depends how you measure well, success. No, yeah. but I mean, not, not artistically. <laughs> not artistically, yeah. I don't know how, how good his paintings were said to be. But J.K. Rowling's brilliant. But then her first few books were shit. So, I mean, the first few Harry Potters were brilliant, but they were, they, I read them again recently and I thought, oof. But then by the fourth one, you're like, oh, yeah. You don't think they're held up at first? It was. It surprised me because I remembered them being brilliant, mm. and they're kids' books, you know. Mm. They are. They are kids' books, and then and then by book four or five, I'm reading them in German. So I thought, you know, oh, the simplicity cool. of the early ones would be great, and it actually was quite annoying. But no, she is. A, she's actually a brilliant writer uh, when she when she wants to be. But but like, yeah. So she, you know, so so we both, you know, on the one hand, we do that. We say people don't have enough empathy when they do. I mean, people do, right? We've evolved to have a certain amount of empathy to be able to sort of get on with society. And then at the same time, people, I think, exaggerate the extent of that empathy because I think we do have empathy for people around us. What we were supposed to be in tribes of like a maximum of seventy people. So you do have empathy if like your parents are getting shot at or your, you know, your friends got broken up with or this and that. 
but people who are trying to claim that they have some sort of moral grounds and moral high grounds over because they care about like some far flung ideology across the world. I, I find that hard to believe. And I think it's good. We have people doing that. You need people on every end of the spectrum for balance, but like it, that's why it took, you know, do you remember that example with, I think it was immigrants coming over to the UK and then nobody gave a shit. And then suddenly we saw like a dead baby on a beach and then suddenly empathy kicked in because we saw the picture, we saw the baby, we saw our own babies in that picture. Suddenly everybody cared about this ideology. So I think I think what I've learned again with my 15 minute fucking answer is that we have empathy, everyone does, apart from 1% of the psychopaths. And it's just not that strong to incorporate anyone, everyone. And those who say that they do have just empathy for everyone around the world without knowing who they are, I think of virtue signaling. Mm. I'd, I'd probably agree with that. <laughs> but it's hard to know. <laughs> Some of the people yeah. who like to virtue signal also are very horrible to other people. <laughs> they disagree That's with That's the so. point. Yeah. Oh, That's the point. This yeah. has been a fascinating talk, man. Uh, before I let you go, I did have well, a few more questions. I'll mm. fire them off to you. Or what's coming up? I guess you've already answered that. Like podcast wise, film wise, what are you planning? Where do you see yourself in five years? <laughs> uh, what was the other one? What advice would you have for anyone who's either trying to make documentaries or get into podcasting? Okay, so yeah, five years. I want the podcast to grow. It's gotten like, it only started four months ago and I'm up to about nearly 10,000 listens a week. So really which, which it sort of blew up because it got on Apple New and Noteworthy and then on a few of those other things, you know. Is that um, literally just because you put them on certain um platforms yeah so i put them on all the you know it's on everything yeah. like everything that you could want it to be on you know all the podcast platforms but then i you can apply for example on like Castbox, stitcher i think on their website somewhere there was an application form so which i think most people probably don't know about i don't know what um, Castbox is oh man <laughs> so, so yeah who's your podcast hosted with is it hosted with literally like, just on my website at the moment but i am going to start putting it on different places that's how you got to do it, man. So you got to like host it with someone like Acast. So this is the advice I'd give to somebody who wants to get into podcast. No, I'm joking, but like, I mean, obviously you've done loads of yours, but but uh, yeah, it started to grow. I mean, I was getting literally three or four months ago, I was getting like, you know, I think my first month I got like seven listens or something. And then the second month I got um, 400 listens. Oh. And then the one after that was like 5,000 or something. And then the next one was 10,000. And then it's gotten up to like, you know, 20,000 or so, you know, and, and climbing. Yeah. Uh, but a big part of that was like, yeah, so you, you host it somewhere like, I think Podbean is one of them, but I've got mine's an Acast. Uh, so they're the hosting partner, right? They do, you just put it on there and it's great. And then, then a lot of, just from that, a lot of podcast platforms, there's like 20 different platforms. Uh, that are quite big the biggest is obviously apple it takes like 60 percent of the share then it's spotify and then like google uh, and then stitcher and castbox and stitcher and castbox both get like five percent of of the views which is not it's not negligible when you think about how many people are listening so you know you put it on those ones as well obviously that doesn't mean people start listening they've still got all the other podcasts there but on their websites they have application for promotion so i went on then sent you know can my thing be promoted and all of that? And I put all the artwork I got done, all the types of people I want to get on there and all that stuff. Like they put it on there and then that helps as well to to get like big name guests as well. Because you say, look, my thing's currently on CastBox. It's currently on the banner at the top or 
whatever. So it started getting put in some small ones like that uh, on their small sections, like editor's pick or whatever. And I've applied again recently being like, hey, I was on editor's pick, but I wonder if now you could get, I could get a banner position because it's a few months later and the podcast is bigger. And I got like some people on uh, Fiverr to like design the, the banner. And they uh, they said, yeah, so it's on CastBox, which so it's this app. It's, a, it's like Apple's podcast platform, but it's just an app you download on whatever phone uh, or on, on computer. Um, and at the very top, the things move along and it'll be like, there's like David Tennant, uh, his thing, someone else, very famous people. And then it'll be mine. And I just think that's, I'm not as famous like these people, but it's just because I thought to do it. I don't think everyone's doing it. Um, maybe keep that one to yourself. Don't put that in this podcast because then you'll have more competition. <laughs> but yeah, that was great for me. And with each one, you get access to a bigger one. And when Apple knew and noteworthy, that was really big. And suddenly I was getting from like, I don't know, a hundred a day by this point. It was it suddenly shot up to 600, 700 a day and then was into like one and a half thousand went on a, on a day I released stuff. Just, you know, saw a huge difference from that. So yeah, that's the podcast uh, <laughs> advice. Uh, so yeah, in five years, I need to get to a point where I'm getting a little bit more so I can start earning a living and putting adverts into the podcast. Uh, keep, you know, keep doing it every single week for like a few years to to build up that build that up you know if you could eventually be getting fifty thousand a week or whatever you can make really really good money out of it and build up a big enough platform as well that for example i could release this book about pedophilia and then i've got such a big platform that i could even you know self-publish it or something oh, uh, fascinating the, to read that please let me know when it comes out yeah i will i will no that'd be great that'd be if i can do all of that i mean it's it might never you know none of this will happen but what the advice i say is documentary maker is, is similar to what i'm saying because i just think it's so competitive now it's so so competitive and i've i you know i always i say this a lot actually but like you you hear about the beatles and all that they all say like oh you know they were rejected seven times before they you know and i'm thinking like look i got rejected seven times just during this phone call probably when i go off you know seven times i can't believe they use seven times or 10 times or 12 times as like a reflection of anything i i get rejected you know, not now because I don't try as much anymore, but there was a time where I was getting rejections probably, you know, 50 a week uh, from various commissioners, production companies around the world. Uh, so I would say keep plugging away, but also like don't don't expect anything to come with that because I start, I, this is something like, it's taken me years to learn. It's like go and make the documentary yourself, even if you have no money. And, and it's a lot of work. You end up sleeping like two hours a night, you know, it's mad, mad work, but like it's, you don't have to fight a war. You're not in World War Two or anything. You only live once. Go and do it. And then the podcast. And it's just about finding, you know, maybe make your own YouTube channel. Give everything a go. Because the gatekeepers now, it's like the BBC and Channel 4. There's like, basically, for example, for documentary making in the UK, there are like two people that I can that I can speak to. There's the, the head of like, head of BBC Three, head of Channel 4, right? And if they don't particularly like something about me or the ideas I have, well, that's it. So it's too much of a risk to sort of put everything into that basket and try those two commissioners and then that's it. So yeah, I would say to people learn online, how to edit, how to make everything, how to do everything, go and do it, find amazing ideas. And uh, if no one's taken them, just put them online and everyone will tell you not to. They'll say, don't work for free, just do it and then do another one. And that's it. And then start Patreon or ask for donations. <laughs> exactly. I haven't started doing that yet and <laughs> I don't want to as well, but it's, it's hard. I haven't started adverts either. 
if you get a thousand, what is it? They do something like, you know, the adverts pay apparently, and this is the the golden number or whatever, but no, but it's different depending on your, what your podcast is about, you know, and mine's going to be quite difficult and yours might be as well, but like a sports one would be very difficult to place with, yeah, obviously like pedophiles and stuff. <laughs> get advertising for, but I won't put forward the pedophile episode when, they, <laughs> when I ask for <laughs> sponsorship or whatever, yeah. but apparently 20 quid for a thousand listens and you can put, you put two adverts in, right? That's 40 quid. If you get 10,000 views eventually, listeners in a week, it's 400 quid a week. You, you can live off that. And then you're growing and growing and growing. So like, you know, it's, it's all doable without these gatekeeper people. That's not bad. Nice. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. It's been a great chat. You're welcome. Thanks for letting me talk. I'm, it's gonna, do you edit it now or do you just put it on? Uh, I, I edit a little bit down, but yeah, I'm going to leave yeah. most of it in because it's been good. <laughs> man i just didn't shut up i'm so i'm sorry i just, just that's fine it's good you know what happens as well is like i work um alone all day i've just been sat at this table working all day since i woke up till now and then my girlfriend she came in while we were talking she's Same, gone to yeah. sleep so, I haven't... <laughs> <laughs> so I, haven't, I haven't spoken to her she's gone to sleep so i won't speak to her so i've literally not spoken to a single human being today apart from you oh same actually so, yeah uh, yeah that's good (laughs) great i mean that's that's the internet the power of the internet love it man oh i very much appreciate it uh you got any plugs to put in before you go i mean if anyone's listened to me drivel on for an hour and 40 minutes then then they must be enjoying it i guess but uh, so to the three people that have listened this long uh yeah add me on twitter actually because yeah this is it i've got an agent as well i've got a fucking agent which is ridiculous because like i don't know but she is having a go at me every day She's got her clients are like Ben Fogel, James Wong, James May, all these people. And then I'm like knocking on her door all the time, just like, hello, have you got me a job? <laughs> but um, what's she trying to get you? All she can do as a, as a, as an agent is sort of like put me in with the production companies. This is something I didn't talk about much because I, I don't really want to go into it. And also because you know, we don't have another three hours, but like, there is, there's a bit of an issue right now with like the woke culture and, and hiring a white male I, I was to, going to ask about that, but I forgot. Mm. You said in one of your interviews that you'd been turned down for something. Was that for yeah. documentary making or what was that for? Yeah, she basically sets me up with like meeting after. She did. I've st- I've just sort of given it up, given up with it. And I speak to her now like once every six, 12 months. We just sort of check in. And my idea is like build up the Twitter, build up the the podcast, and then sort of try and get the book out and then go back to her and be like, okay. You know, there are still things in the making, so I can't say too much i don't want to sort of you know ruin my any chance that's still there but it's been seven years of like she sets me up with a production company that's what she does you know she knows all the production companies that's how it works you know rather than me and with a commissioner but she know them as well but you know so i go and meet them all and they'll say after half an hour or an hour like oh wow we love these ideas like oh what these vigilantes in peru and you know gay conversion in ecuador all this stuff and they're like you know the only thing is because you're you know, white and male at the moment, you know, we were wondering, would you, would you be okay with having a minority as a presenter and you could be off screen, you could be behind the screen. And I'm like, well, the thing is, I'm not really a filmmaker. I'm a journalist, you know, that I don't want to be some assistant producer behind a camera. It's not, it's I'd rather just work. It's despicable as well. I can't believe that. Yeah. It, <laughs> it upsets me, man. It, it, and the thing is as well, like you, you try for the first, uh, the first like year or two, you know that feeling when you like give a tip at the at a cafe or whatever, you put like a couple of quid in this little money box thing, right? And they're not watching and you sort of want to take it out and put it back in again louder so they know. 
So <laughs> I have that all the time. I sort of I sort of throw money in really loud because I want them to see that I've done it. And basically, I felt very early on, and I was still quite young and open to this, you know. And I like the idea of addressing societal imbalance. It's really important. I get the whole thing. You know, I'm not completely blind to it. So for the first couple of years like this. I suppose I was always, I thought like, well, I'll make it anyway, eventually I'll be able to get stuff done. So it's just going to be a bit more difficult. Fine. I've had other advantages in life, but going back to that analogy of the money in the, the, the box, I would then come back and you see on Twitter people all over the place, just going like, when are they going to give minorities a chance? And I've just been out of a meeting where they've said to me, like, can we steal all your ideas and have a minority presenting? So they are, I mean, it's just, and this is, I'm not trying to make a political point at all. I'm just telling the truth of, of my experience, which is that they are bending over backwards to her. And they have been doing so for seven or eight years, at least that's my experience. And not only do I then come home and see that on Twitter, like people, when are they going to give them a chance? But friends of mine, friends of mine who even work in documentaries and stuff who don't know this will say to me, no, it's not true. And I'll be like, but I lit it literally just happened. Like, what do you mean it's not true? How many times has it happened to you, estimated? 50, 100, maybe 100 times. Every time, you know, nearly every time. And they might. This what is frustrating is there'll be someone listening to this now probably shaking their head going like that's so not true if you only knew about what people and i get the other arguments but all i can do i had a, i had this debate with a friend the other day who works in documentaries and she was saying to me like oh come on like imagine having to go into these production meetings and you're arabic or black or whatever do you know how hard that must be and i'm going like i get your point but they have literally said to me like can we take your ideas and use somebody who is arabic or black so i get that a lot of things would be harder um so it's complicated. And as soon the problem is, as soon as you start saying that, you come across as some sort of like, you know, right wing fascist or something or some sort of racist who doesn't have empathy for other people in different positions themselves. Uh, but the what, opposite of that can't be discriminated against white people. What, well, you know, you could argue, and I, I get that as well. You could argue that, like, look, we've had uh, every advantage and stuff. I then, if I have to, I play the Jewish card, you know, because like, Jews have been pretty discriminated against over the years. If, if so, I only bring that card out when people say, oh, come on, you guys have had it good for 10,000 years or whatever. And I'm like, well, my great grandparents were probably almost starved before they came over, came over here. So like, it's fucking ridiculous, you know, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's mad. Yeah. It is, it is mental. Look, but, but, but also it, it is, you know, undoubtedly easier being white and male. What, what Helen Lewis said, I had this feminist Helen Lewis on the other week and she's great because she's not, she's just like tempered and, and smart. She's really smart. And she said, the problem is you're telling feminists or whoever are telling white men, like you've had it easy. And she said, that's not the case. White men on average in general have, are having it easier than people from minority backgrounds. If you tell people you've had it easy, you're th those people are thinking, well, no, I haven't. I had this happen to me, my mother, this happened to my, my brother, this happened, you know, and you just think, well, I'm not going to listen to you. But if people can just be a bit more reasoned and go like, okay, it, it, then we can admit it and go, because I don't want, we don't want to admit it's been easy for us because then it sort of devalues everything we do. It's like anything you do. And it, it's, so it hasn't been easy for any of us. Nobody's life is easy, but there are parts of it that are easier. So I do get the whole thing. It's just that, <laughs> Yeah, after after seven years of it, and seven years of of basically people saying it's not happening, which is basically saying to me that, so you're not a good enough documentary maker because it's easy for white males, but you couldn't do it. You know, that's the suggestion I'm I'm hearing. So, 
yeah, after seven years of that, I mean, the first two years, yeah, fine. But it's that thing, I'm putting the money in the till. Nobody's even here. You know, I felt like I was sacrificing myself. I thought, I'm such a great guy. I'm sacrificing myself for the greater good. But then you come home and everyone's like, you're a prick, you white male. Everything's so easy for you. That's when you're like, oh, well, come on. Like, you know, not only do I not get the job, but I'm still demonized. And I look at like, there's a lot of minorities that, and, and, non, and you know, white people on Twitter, they're banging on about it. And when it's a white person, I just think, well, you know, you're the producer of some show. Why don't you quit then and give a minority your job? Because, you know, it's easy. It's easy to stand up and say, I'm not going to give a job to this white guy. But what would be great? If they stepped out, I'd go fair enough. You know, good on you. If, if they stepped down and gave a minority their job, fair enough. So, yeah, I would say pretty, almost every time it gets, either gets said to me or it's intimated very subtly, but often it's very clear, clearly openly said, like, because you're white and male. We we can't give you this right now. Does it make you feel resentful at all? Yeah, man. Yeah, look, we're shaped by our experiences, right? You know, you look at a lot of right wing fascisty people who who are bastards, and <laughs> but but like a lot of that, you know, you, you, this is this is what I've been trying to learn from. This is what I was talking about with learning from documentaries and stuff. Like, where does that come from? People aren't just born being angry and right wing and stuff. It's it's that they. You know, you look at the incels and stuff, for example, they feel, it doesn't mean they were badly treated. They probably weren't, but they feel like they were. If you feel badly treated, I think it pushes you one way or the other. And it certainly pushed me a little bit away because I'm the types of people I would usually be agreeing with and going, yeah, we need more diversity. Uh, <laughs> I, I happen to know because I've seen like, you know, the diversity diamond report that came out recently. You can look that up. That's um, if you want. It's some report that was basically... To, to make sure there's enough diversity and stuff. And basically 13% of the UK workforce is BAME, uh, Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic. 23% of the on-screen talent in the UK is BAME or BAME. So they're very much, they're the most overrepresented group by some distance. And then I'm having to see everywhere that that's not true. So, you know, when you're a documentary maker, you want the truth. But what really frustrates me is that had I just been given the great jobs and stuff in the beginning, I wouldn't even be thinking about this stuff. And I would probably be one of those people without thinking about it, just tweeting, come on, more diversity. That's why it's very easy for like the big actors, Hollywood actors and stuff to do that stuff because they've already made it. You know, it's like if I were to be doing that, if I did that, I got in just before like a lot of the minority stuff, the, you know, the woke or PC stuff started kicking off and then started tweeting about it. It would be like I'm pulling the ladder up for other people like me after me which i think is quite tempting to do for for people would they even realize that they're doing that no 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 no, no. That's not a million years because why would they why would they have to think that way you know maybe you wouldn't even think of the consequences they don't care that's terrifying just the idea you've been turned down so many times and also people think that it's good enough to make if someone else was the face of it. Yeah. Yeah. It feels shit. And I'm very wary, you know, I want to, you know, hopefully no one will take a little screen grab of this and sort of say, ah, look at him. He's... Cause I'm still hoping at some point to get those kinds of jobs. I've got something in now with, uh, with some production companies and that, that they're taking to a TV channel. So, you know, but I don't think I've said anything or, you know, I, I wouldn't say, I, like I say, I get it. I get the whole thing, but I don't know. We'll see. Maybe if they hear this, it will push them to be like, oh God, we probably should hire hire this guy now. You know, it's very hard to argue this point as well because people will say, oh, what about this white guy? What about that white guy? The thing is like, you know, 80% of, of the population or 87% are white. So, so you, oh God, I hate that I'm even like 
you know, we're having a discussion on a podcast and I go, look at these, this is how many white people there are. This is how many, you know, I don't want to even be, it wasn't even something. It's what woke has done. Yeah. I never wanted to have to say all this stuff. I didn't, I never saw myself. I never would have, you know, you said before, what would you envisage in five years? Five years ago, I never thought I'd be sitting here now going like, 70% of people are white. So what do you think of that? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not that guy. I don't want to be that guy. I just want to sort of be understanding of others and for them to understand, you know, it's a really, I hope I haven't oversimplified it because it is complicated and it, it is tough if you are black and from an impoverished area or whatever and you're growing up and you're not seeing enough role models. The stats that I brought up talk about the overrepresentation of BAME people, but it doesn't necessarily say what roles they are getting, right? So it, it's so complicated and I think we always want an easy solution. And, and that's one of the things I've learned from the documentary making. There is just no easy way to sum up like humankind and society and, and who we are. Yeah, I think it's, it's the problem is when you start actually looking at people as groups instead of just individuals and they shouldn't yeah. really be looking at how you look like when you bring them a film. Is the film good? That's how I feel anyway. Yeah. But, no, yeah. I agree. I agree. But then at what point though, because a lot of the stuff that was said to me about the abortion one was that I was a man some people said a white man. I don't know why that even came into it, but a man presenting a thing about abortion and it is a, it's a feminine topic. Women are the ones who suffer from it. So I get that. I just hoped the film would be strong enough that people might overlook that and I wouldn't impose my opinion. But then it is a, is a human issue, even though it's, it's something that women have to go through. Men have to hold their wife's hand if they make their, that decision or, mm. you know what I'm saying? That's true. That's true. It's very complicated. But like, I think the issue in Argentina, for example, is that like, you know, so it's, it's, it's a very patriarchal society and you've got this situation where like the problem, it passed through Congress where there was a bigger mix of like Congress men and women and then didn't get through the Senate in the end. The Senate was basically full of old white men. So, you know, and then I'm presenting this documentary about it. So I do get why it might be considered inappropriate and offensive to some people. At the same time, what you're saying about like individuals versus groups it's just the way that certain people think and some people think with a group mindset there's nothing wrong with that in its essence and some people think more individually and from what i've heard you think more on an individual level so do i some people think on a group level and they do identify people by groups and those people in my mind are often very far right and very far left mm. and you know who's to say who's right but it's very complicated as well because you know when you're talking about a presenter of a documentary it's it's a lot of it is about image it's not necessarily about how good you know does anyone really care how good a stacy dooley documentary is or how good mine or louis throughs is or whoever it's it's about this is the image that we as the bbc or channel 4 are putting forward and depending on your point of view you can either see that as shallow and fake or you can see that as quite an important way. You know, there are kids looking up to these kinds of things and it's really important how these these channels sort of dress themselves up. I think kids have much more of imagination than people give them credit for. Like when I was a kid, I was convinced through like in basketball that I was going to be seven foot, <laughs> even though my parents <laughs> are both, both under six foot. <laughs> so yeah, and that never deterred the imagination that I wanted to be a basketball player or even like a massive wrestler or something. How often do I... How often do, do you, you do you masturbate? Do I, do I masturbate? <laughs> no, I thought that's what you're going to ask. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That could be the question. <laughs> How often? I can't resist it when someone starts a question. I do this all the time as well, by the way. The question: when someone starts a question and there's a gap, 
I can't help but fill it uh, no, <laughs> with, a, with the most ridiculous thing I could think of. <laughs> I can't remember what we were talking about now. <laughs> <laughs> How often? How often do you masturbate? <laughs> no comment. No comment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Have, you, have I made you lose your train of thought? <laughs> it's all right. Oh, I was just, I was just wondering. And this was a thing as well that was brought up once in the group setting was overrepresentation of male characters in video games, and the fact yeah. that females might not want to play the video game if there's too many male characters. And then me and another person were talking, and we both realised we had only played Resident Evil as the female character. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> It depends. In a video game, you, you, I kind of see it as you don't really want to be yourself. <laughs> sure, sure, that makes sense. But they could argue as well. The thing is, you were into video. I, I guess, I guess the issue is like, I guess people who are an- very anti woke, and sometimes I'm part of that, but sometimes I'm, I try and warn myself against it. I mean, at the end of the day, when you are a white man, it's in your interest to be anti woke right now because if the woke people are right, like I said, it means everything in your life was easy. That it, you know, if they're right. It means everything was easy. There was no point fighting for anything. And whenever you failed, you failed because you're a bloody idiot, not because, you know, it was just very hard. It's like, well, it was easy for you. So it's in our interest, and we all have cognitive bias on both sides of this this argument. So it's in our interest not to be... It's in, in, in the interest of woke people for various reasons to believe in that kind of thing. But one argument I would say, like, on the woke side, I mean, we we often talk about race and stuff as, as though things were equal. And it's... So, so in your example you had the liberty as an individual to play as a woman, but you were also part of a gaming community. I imagine that was very much part of male, very male dominated. And the fighting people that you'd grown up watching and been around were male. So you, you had the liberty to sort of go, I'm going to be a woman character, (laughs) which, which is great because you know, Lara Croft is sexy, but um, (laughs) if you do grow up as a woman, you had the choice at any time to go back and be a man in the game you have the choice you have all this testosterone and manliness all around you and i guess as a woman we don't know what it's like to be that suppressed minority who's who's and they're not minority women but like i said the, <laughs> the subjugate you know the with fewer rights perhaps or, or who are not expected to be part of the gaming community and it, maybe they would like to play with a girl just to, you know do you know what i mean i'm just trying to be devil's advocate on both so i get both sides totally i can see what you're saying as well yeah i think i take a a certain discomfort at the ideal that just because you white you have it easy even though i'm i'm very fortunate to have such a supportive family growing up and never really an issue financially but i did also grow up struggling all the way through school with learning difficulties so the idea of saying white privilege and shit it really it's no offense isn't really the word but it just gets on my goat <laughs> So, it's, uh, it's very offensive. It is it's, very offensive. And that, it's, it's making an sorry, assumption about people. I think that's just the, the problem I have with it. I think it is that. And I think that's why it was great to hear uh, Helen Lewis on my podcast, my brilliant podcast on The Edge <laughs> with Andrew Gold with Helen, Helen Lewis. It was great to hear her saying, it's not that it's been easy for you. And it's it varies so much from person to person. It's that somebody in your exact circumstance who also was a minority it might be a little bit harder. And and as an entire community of people, when you add up 70 million people and all of the people who are who are from from minority backgrounds have it slightly harder, it starts to feel like a big gap. And then and you start to see big gaps on a on a communal level. 
And I think it's really, really dangerous to start telling people they've had it easy. And for example, you with your learning difficulties uh, and me with whatever else might happen in my childhood when, or, or what's happening now with my job search, telling me like it's easy to get a job. It's like, well, it's not. It just pushes us away. It means we're not going to be open to that. You know, otherwise we'd be much more open to it maybe. And I think, I mean, the, the biggest example is obviously Donald Trump. I mean, basically all the white people in Central America who we make fun of and go, oh, they're all a bunch of idiots. But at the end of the day, they're in a situation where they've got to like worry about putting food on the table for their kids and stuff. A lot of them are really, really poor, like poverty that we don't even have in the UK. And they're being told over and over again by like middle-class rich white people as well, in universities, that it's easy to be white and you've had an easy life. And that's just not their experience at all. So they're going to shut their minds off to everything else. And they're going to vote for a guy called Donald Trump who probably isn't going to do anything in their interests and who is a millionaire himself. But that's human nature. You get pushed away. It's really important that I, I guess that people like you and me don't lose sight of the fact that we have our own cognitive biases and that we have been pushed one way. And I'm always trying to go, whenever I hear something that Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro especially uh, says that seems reasonable, to really try and self-analyze and go, okay, but am I just thinking that because I know so many idiots on the woke left who have pushed me so far and maybe the reality somewhere in the middle. And, and, and so we have that responsibility, I think, and they have a responsibility to stop like, you know, alienating people that they want on their side because it's a selfish instinct in itself to just tell everyone we're better and cleverer than you are you're all idiots. If they really wanted people on side, they would talk to us and they would say like, hey, I get it. I get that you've had a hard time as well. We've all had a hard time and let's try and work together. But that, does, that doesn't happen. Yeah. That's a shame. It is just, just part of the thinking nuancely, isn't it? Yeah. That's what I was thinking yeah. earlier when you were saying about the you're not interested in the pedos that Roger people because <laughs> the beauty is in the nuance of someone who's got like a disorder like that but then is trying their hardest to not go through with what their brain is telling them it's 100 percent that and it's actually this is the, the the thing going back to that the doctors tell us that they've told me anyway that i've spoken to is that there are three uh huge risk factors with those pedophiles because you've got pedophiles who are just going to abuse kids anyway mm -hmm. right and then you there's nothing you can do about them lock them up you can lock them up forever but that's it and those are horrible people i guess and then you've got pedophiles who would never do it don't worry about them. But then in the middle, there's a huge, huge group of people. You know, it's 1% of the world of pedophiles and a good percentage of them are these people right in the middle who could offend or could not offend. And it depends on how we treat them as to what they will do. So they have these risk factors. One of them is drinking alcohol. You know, if they drink alcohol, they're more likely to go and abuse a kid, give in to their desires and watch child porn or whatever. Uh, another one is being around children, obviously. I mean, that makes sense. If you're not around them, you're you're less likely to abuse them. The third one is really important because we can have an effect on that. And that's why I want to write this book is that it's stigmatization. If they feel stigmatized, if they feel alienated, if they feel pushed away, uh, if they're told you are useless, you are shit, you're scum, hang the pedos, they eventually go, screw it. You know, they've had a drink, they're near some kids, they'll just do it because they like, whereas if you give them responsibility and you say, hey, I know it's hard. Life is hard and I know it's hard for you and you deserve therapy like everyone else and we're going to help you and you have some responsibility now to, to make make things better. That that guy is not going to give in to, to his you know desires. And I think that's the key thing that I've tried to learn 
for all the documentaries, all the interviews I've done, no matter whether it's about paedophilia or whether it's about, uh, you know, the anti-woke stuff with, you know, white people being told you're, you're just stupid, everything's easy for you. It just, it's a selfish thing to do. We all want to shout at paedophiles because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We all want to shout at white people if we're to show that we're not those white people. We're the good ones who realize it's a really selfish instinct and it causes a lot more harm. In the case of paedophiles, it causes uh, countless more child abuse, which is crippling because we're too selfish to just look at the look at the facts and help them, help the ones who don't want to offend others. And in the case of the woke stuff, I mean, look, Donald Trump is literally in charge of America, and I'm convinced it comes entirely, or almost entirely, from that, from that feeling that white, people, that a lot of white people in America have. So, huge effects in the world by by sort of this selfishness. So, yeah, bring we need to bring people round and not push them away. Totally. What a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Uh, I'd be, I'd love to have you back on once your book comes out. Oh yeah, I'd love to, man. Yeah, thank thank you so much for having me on. Ah, oh, no worries, man. Spoke for so long. Sorry, man. <laughs> it's been two hours. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I just it's the longest get, one I've done. I get lonely at night. It's been great talking to you. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd love it if people do listen to the whole two hours. Then get in touch with both of us because I'm interested to know if anyone ever listens to two hours. Yeah, I'd be interested too. <laughs> yeah. So let us know. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening and thank you to Andrew for joining me. Catch him on Twitter at AndrewGold underscore OK. And check out his show, On the Edge with Andrew Gold, on all your favourite podcast platforms. And if you do so on YouTube, you can also find links to his documentaries. And that's it. Bye.